We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. President of the National Association of Scholars on Life, Liberty, and Levin, his book called 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, says the larger aim of the 1619 Project is to change America's understanding of itself. The 1619 Project aligns with the views of those on the progressive left who hate America and would like to transform it radically into a different kind of a nation. Such a transformation would be a terrible mistake. It would endanger our hard-won liberty, our self-government, and our virtues as a people. Said so the 1619 Project has taken ideas that a few years ago were exclusively fringe, a good way into the realm of mainstream opinion. The idea, for example, that the American Revolution was a pro-slavery event, once circulated only among conspiracy-minded activists with comic book-style theories of history. The 1619 Project has brought it from the playground into the classroom to the consternation of serious historians everywhere. And he condemned this 1619 Project as phony scholarship. He says it's critical race theory dressed up as history. The usual way for disputes about history to be resolved, he said, is for historians to present their best arguments and their sources and journal articles. Each side can, can then examine the evidence for themselves and hammer out the truth. But the 1619 Project evades this kind of transparency. Hannah Jones, who makes some of the most audacious claims, cites no sources at all. The project, as presented originally in the New York Times magazine, contains no footnotes, no bibliography, or other scholarly footholds. In December 2019, the New York Times magazine, five exemplary historians, it, quote, expressed strong reservations about important aspects of the 1619 Project. Welcome to this week's episode of We the Deplorables. I am your host, Sherry Wilson, a patriot, a person who believes in uh, freedom, faith, family, a person who believes in the ideals of this country that were set forth by our founding fathers, and hopefully all the work that they did uh, many, many, many years ago will save this country in the long run. And that is a purpose of this podcast. It is to alert you, the American people, the patriot, to what exactly is going on in the halls and the back rooms of academia, government, and corporation, education, all of those things that we think are just fine. But as I'm sure you've seen 
in the news. Well, maybe you haven't because not many listen to mainstream news. But if you have seen uh, any of the unrest from uh, parents who are concerned about the teaching of critical race theory in their classrooms, then this will be uh, one of the most important uh, series that you can listen to to educate yourself and on, you know, basically some things that you can do to uh, affect change uh, in America. And we're going to finish off our series that we've done a five part series on the Marxism that is in our educational uh, system, all the way down from elementary school through higher education, uh, teachers' unions, etc. And then we went into a three-part series on critical race theory, exactly what that is. We're going to end with uh, an episode on the 1619 Project. And when I first started hearing of the 1619 Project, I really didn't know what exactly it was and I you know did a little bit of research and basically found out that it's a bunch of propaganda Uh, like the clip that I played for you there's no historical footnotes or sourcing or anything it's literally been made up in the mind of Nicole Hannah Jones and other writers from the New York Times and it's defined as a uh, long-form journalism project and uh, we'll, we'll dive into what all that includes later. And we'll also get into Ms. Hannah Jones in a bit. But I want to, you know, and I didn't know this, alert you guys to a little known fact. Maybe it's a, a much known fact. I'm not sure. Of the New York Times being on the wrong side of history repeatedly and being a propaganda machine for many, many decades. Um. Let's see here. I'm reading from American Marxism by uh, Mark Levin, and it says, The New York Times has a disastrous record on truth and human rights. It has been a propaganda operation for some of the most uh, heinous monsters and regimes in modern history. As I detailed in Unfreedom of the Press, the Times all but covered up Adolf Hitler's extermination of the European Jews for virtually the entire Holocaust, Earlier, Walter Durante, its Moscow bureau chief from 1922 to 1936, was Joseph Stalin's favorite Western reporter. He wrote glowingly of the genocidal dictator in the Soviet Union and helped cover up the purposeful mass starvation of millions of Ukrainians in 1932. And in the late 1950s, Herbert L. Matthews, the Times foreign correspondent, was the first American reporter to interview Fidel Castro and the last to recognize the man as a ruthless and slightly mad uh, murderer he created, fell in love with, and ultimately was devoured by Castro's mythology without ever really understanding what was happening. Today, the Times gives voice to, the raci- to a racist, anti-American ideology built on Marxist ideas and tactics, brainwashes our children with lies, and undermines our own country. So, um, the uh, aim of the 1619 Project, according to the New York Times, is, quote, to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contribution of black Americans at the very center of the United States national uh, narrative. Now, this is fancy Marxist speech for basically saying 
that America, especially white Americans, are inherently racist. Therefore, the entire country must be reframed. So whenever you hear the phrase reframe or the phrase reimagine, those are Marxist terms for tearing down this country, tearing down its principles, its constitution, its laws, etc., and recreating America in a Marxist uh, framework. And I wanted to uh, define it to you from some of the statements in Mark Levin's book, because I think it will definitely um, help you. Uh, he says, uh, the 1619 Project, writing in Real Clear Public Affairs, Christina Skirk, a research assistant at Hillsdale College, explains that it is, quote, a series of ex- essays published by the New York Times. The 1619 Project reframes U.S. history by arguing that 1619, the year slaves were first brought to Jamestown, Virginia, is the year of America's true founding. In partnership with the Times, the Pulitzer Center created a curriculum based on 1619 that they've distributed to over 3,500 schools. The curriculum teaches that slavery has had a lasting impact on all U.S. institutions, according to the Pulitzer Center lesson plan. One discussion guide uh, question asks, how do societal structures developed to support the enslavement of black people and the anti-black racism that was cultivated in the U.S. to justify slavery influenced many aspects of modern laws, policy, systems, and culture. Skirt continues in a video created for the curriculum, Nicole Hannah-Brown, or Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project, explains that growing up in the Midwest, she saw the landscape of inequality through her school bus window. The most telling portion of the video is when Hannah Jones discusses American history, first describing 1776 positively as the year that set in motion the most liberatory democratic experiment in the history of all the world. As she speaks, iconic images, play of the pilgrims, the American founders, the 1950s, and the Statue of Liberty. Then the images begin to rewind, and Hannah Jones says the only way you can believe that this country was the most liberatory democratic nation that the world has ever seen is to, of course, erase the indigenous people that were already here and to ignore the enslaved Africans. Everywhere Hannah Jones looks from her New York Times perch, she sees racism. Hannah Jones claims that nearly everything in modern American life is tainted by the legacy of slavery. She points to incarceration rights, the lack of universal health care, the length of maternity leave, minimum wage laws, low rates of union membership, highway systems, explicitly and implicitly discriminatory laws, and poorly uh, performing school systems in minority neighborhoods as examples of the continued effects of racism. What is the goal of the New York Times Project? Like I said, it is to reframe American history. Now, um, as we just heard in the clip, there are no um, uh, footnotes, there are no sources to any of the statements, any of the uh, air quote history that these people are trying to uh, push down our throats concerning uh, the 1619 Project. And it was such a non-scholarly a scholarly uh, project that historians in the New York Times and others were like, hey, this is just outright false. You're presenting a picture of America that is not true. It is absolutely not true in light of, uh, you know, facts. So um, the, I think it was in, 
Okay, here we go. So one of the things that really bothered uh, actual scholars was the idea that the American Revolution was a pro-slavery event once circulated only among conspiracy-minded activists with comic book-style theories of history. The 1619 Project has brought it from the playground into the classroom to the consideration of serious his uh, uh, consternation of serious historians everywhere. That was from uh, Peter W. Wood that was mentioned in the clip. And he goes on to say, the usual way for disputes about history to be resolved is for historians to present their best arguments and their sources in journal articles. Each side can then examine the evidence for themselves and ham- hammer out the truth. The 1619 Project evades this kind of transparency. Hannah Jones, who makes some of the most audacious claims, cites no sources at all. The project is presented originally in the New York Times Magazine, contains no footnotes, bibliography, or other scholarly footholds. The project is intended to offer a new American history in which slavery and white supremacy become the dominant organizing things. But the historians explained that, quote, the errors which concern major events cannot be described as interpretation or framing, They're matters of verifiable fact, which are the foundation of both honest scholarship and honest journalism. They suggest a displacement of historical understanding by ideology, dismissal of the objections on racial grounds that they are the objections of only white historians has affirmed that displacement. On the American Revolution, pivotal to our account of history, they write, the project asserts the founders declared the colonies independent of Britain in order to ensure slavery would continue. This is not true. And that's that's the thing. See, these ideas of how the nation was formed, they should have first been submitted into journals, kind of like peer-reviewed journals that you have for uh, medicine. That's how this works. History, you don't just grab history out of thin air and declare this is what happened. We have plenty of material, uh, writings from our founding fathers, their own words that will show the ideas that they had, which we're going to dive into. And so this propaganda was first published August 2019 on the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved uh, Americans in Virginia. Now, I believe that was August 25th uh, was the exact date. I could be wrong. And so it was a, a series of stories, series of interviews and essays that all were designed to enforce the idea that 1619, not 1776, was our true Founding. So again, we were only formed as a country to preserve and enslave or expand slavery. It's a lie. So our founding fathers didn't form America so they could have slaves in 1619 because number one, America didn't exist. We were under British rule and we dang sure didn't fight a revolutionary war to keep our slaves. There's no way. And, And how do we know this? Well, The writings of our founding fathers, other documents, and their actions are the context of the founding of this country. And like Levin said, again, I'm going to say for the fourth time, there's not a single footnote or reference to a single historical document or other scholars' research to prove anything that these people said. Now, did we have slaves? Yes. 
Did some of our founding fathers and citizens after 1776 and at the time of the uh, founding of our country have slaves and want to keep slavery in America? Yes. Did we have racism and laws that were unfair and even enforced in the Supreme Court? Yes. But that's not the full story. So I'm going to do my best to give you a brief history. And please, if you have different source information, let me know. But here's what I know so far. Slavery in America was actually a British institution in law. Because remember, at the time, we were British colonists under British rule. America, as a nation, did not exist. The British law at the time of the 13 colonies was that slavery was an institution that was enforced by their law. And you could not free your slaves, for example, uh, any other way except at death. So it was against the law to free your slaves at the time under British rule. And that's why Washington did so with his inherited slaves. You see, the slaves passed down from person to person through a family line. And according to British law, you couldn't free your inherited slaves except again at death. And that's why when he died, he could not free his wife's slaves because they were inherited through her line. Now, I don't know if she did later. I'm not sure. But at one point, Washington may have accepted or embraced slavery as something very normal uh, to him. But he began to detest slavery and he wished for, quote, a plan adopted for the abolition of it. In fact, the desire to abolish slavery was building at the time of the American Revolution. And our founding fathers were living at the cusp of that change. Not all of them embraced it. But Thomas Jefferson, one who has been maligned, uh, and again, these people weren't angels, you know, it's idealistic to think these people always had pure motives, that they only sought the good of everybody. That's, that's actually stupid. No one is that good. You know, even Jesus, when he was here and a man came up to him and said, you know, good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, that was kind of a trick question because he was trying to point out that the man recognized the inherent goodness of, of Jesus and he had to be God. But the, the idea that no one is good but God, it, it's a very real thing. And so even though these people had skewed things, even though they had mindsets that were con uh, contrary to the goodness of all, they were also very smart. And they saw an America where slavery was no longer part of it. So Thomas Jefferson, he had slaves. But he wrote a strong condemnation of slavery in his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, but it was removed because of very insistent slaveholding delegates. So what does this mean? Does this mean Thomas Jefferson was a hypocrite? No, it means that under that current law, slavery was an institution. And in his state, I don't know if they uh, created laws where he could free his slaves uh, or if he had to die before they were free. I'm not sure how that worked. But at this point in the history of our country, they were starting to have representatives from different states that were joining together to create our documents. Uh, they, uh, you know, eventually we had our Declaration of Independence. We had our Constitution. We had our Bill of Rights, etc., but already we had representatives from different colonies they were now calling states. And so if a state 
was for slavery, pro-slavery, and they had laws that protected that institution, then the citizens abided by those laws. And uh, so he was, in fact, so concerned over the issue of slavery that he wrote, and this is inscribed in marble at his uh, memorial, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. So he knew slavery was going to bring a reckoning. And sure enough, it did with the Civil War. Now, some wanted to actually frame slavery in the Constitution, pro-slavery delegates. They wanted to uh, enshrine it. But James Madison said that it was, quote, wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. So the Constitution was written so that it did not sanction slavery. And the language was so that one day slavery could be challenged in the courts of law and be overturned, which is why the phrase that all men are created equal was put in there because they knew that slavery was incompatible and that could be used later in a court of law. So it's idealistic. It's impractical to think that this nation could be formed without compromise. But the way these men were guided by wisdom with foresight into the future was God's doing. Lincoln, the great emancipator, said, quote, to declare the right so that the enforcement of it might follow as fast as circumstances should permit. In other words, he was saying that we were forming a republic, not a dictatorship, not a, a monarchy. And at the time, there were those who were representing states that were opposed to abolishing slavery, and there were representatives that were wanting to abolish slavery. So to steamroll ahead would have undermined the very principles of a republic. And the hope was that as men's hearts changed, slavery would be abolished. So these documents that were formed in 1776 led the way uh, in abolishing slavery through Lincoln's wisdom and his steadfastness. And he believed in it so much, he was willing to fight a war over it. Benjamin Franklin was president of the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery, and John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, was president of a similar society. John Adams hated slavery his entire lifetime. He said that it was, quote, a foul contagion in the human character and an evil of colossal magnitude. Now, Frederick Douglass, one of the champions of the abolitionist movement at the time, and a spokesman for it, was born a slave, but he escaped. And initially, he condemned the Constitution. But after studying its history, and I'm sure seeing the intent behind how things were phrased and set up, he said that it was, quote, a glorious liberty document, and that the Declaration of Independence was, quote, the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So he researched, unlike many woke people and leftists and progressives and American Marxists, they don't study. They don't take the time to dive into the intent of the founding fathers and the intent of various documents. They just look like, well, we had slavery and they said all men are created equal. They were obviously liars and hypocrites. They don't go into the nuances. There's no critical thinking involved in the things that these people are doing except for destroying this country. Unfortunately, proponents of slavery, they reject the truth of the founding of our country. Um, And people today that are Marxists are doing the same thing. They're like in the same camp. They don't realize it. 
John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, he had to reject the idea of equality, and he said that the principle was, quote, the most dangerous of all political error and a self-evident lie. Why is this important? It's important because he understood what the founders meant. So his response to their intent of the equality of all men was to reject it and call it a lie. The conflict was finally settled at the cost of 600,000 lives during the Civil War. This nation was willing to fight a war to end slavery. We were willing to fight each other. White people fighting other white people to end slavery. Black Americans fighting other white people or white people were willing to lay down their lives to end slavery. But even that didn't settle really the issue of enshrining racist laws. Therefore, God had to raise up Martin Luther King Jr. to get us to the next step of freedom at the cost of his own life. So here's a little known fact that many liberals try to deny, and that is the first slave owner by court edict was actually a black man named Anthony Johnson. Now they're going to spin this and they're going to try to dismiss this. And there may be some facts that can be added and some nuances. I'm open to that. But back at the beginning of the colonies, while under British rule, the term indentured servants was the norm. Now, I'm not denying that slavery existed uh, at any time in our nation's history. It's just how things were. So a person would come over here, and instead of Americans buying slaves, what they would do is they would buy, uh, unfortunately, these, these people that were taken against their will, but they would instead uh, put them to work as indentured servants. So what that meant is once the debt was satisfied that they paid, they would free them with land to work, and sometimes they would even acquire servants. So you might be like, okay, what on earth? How did this happen? Well, again, British law was slavery, not indentured servitude. So many colonists, they bought the slaves so they could free them later. It was that or let the slaves uh, shipped over die. So Anthony, who started off as an indentured servant, and he worked and had his own land and his own servants, gained his freedom in 1651. He continued the same practice, and during the course of his lifetime, he bought a man named John Casor to, again, be an indentured servant, pay off his debt, get his own land, etc., etc. Well, uh, Mr. Casor refused to pay off his debt. Now, here's the thing. Anthony took the matter to court because, again, they respected the law back then, even if they didn't like it. And the court ruled that Caesar was a labor for life or a slave. The main points of this historical fact is that, number one, we had a British law that dictated slavery and how it was enforced. And two, some chose indentured servants to avoid slavery in the colonies. They were doing the best they could. Others inherited slaves, and still others actually liked slavery. We can't overlook that ugly truth. And three, a black man won a court judgment to turn his black indentured servant into a slave. And contrary to the myths of the 1619 Project, our founding fathers very strategically included language that known bigots like Calhoun recognized, uh, and eventually slavery was ended legally. Our founding fathers were legalists, meaning they had a high regard for the law and they were very careful to effect change legally because they didn't want a dictatorship. They didn't want uh, uh, 
a, a monarchy. They wanted to be a republic. So the 1619 Project is basically CRT in disguise, okay? And like I said, it's being taught now in our school systems. Um, even before the 1619 Project, the media embraced and promoted critical race theory, setting the stage for the violent riot riots that have engulfed numerous cities. Zach Goldberg, a doctoral candidate in political science at Georgia State University, undertook what may be the most extensive examination of media reporting on race and racism in recent years. In the wake of the killing of George Floyd in, George Floyd in Minneapolis, the United States is experiencing a racial reckoning. The response from America's elite liberal institutions suggests that many have embraced the ideology of the protesters, which is basically, okay, the, the shame, uh, the, the race shaming, you're inherently racist. All of these things have been spawned from uh, CRT and 1619 continues the uh, propaganda to inherently change our nation and how we view ourselves. So uh, it's grown. 1619 Project has grown. You know, media, academia have definitely embraced this garbage. And so there's essay series, there's a website, there's podcasts, there's theatrical exposés. And thanks to the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the 1619 Project now has its own curriculum and lesson plans prepackaged for teachers to teach in our public school classrooms. Children have poems and pictures. Adults have podcasts and dramatic performances, along with some outrage, of course, sprinkled in there for added benefit. They've also sent... New York Times writers on multi-city tours to talk to students. Oh, and copies of the magazine with the 1619 Project in it to high schools and colleges. With the media, now our own government under the Biden administration, academia, and race pimps who masquerade as ministers, we have seen a fundamental change in race relations in America. Let me read you these statistics. Focusing on the Times and Washington Post, Goldberg found that prior to 2013, the terms white and racial privilege appeared in an average of 0.000013% and 0.000015% of all words in the Times and the Post. In other words, hardly at all. Between 2013 and 2019, these average frequencies grew by an astounding 1,200% in the Times, which was surpassed by nearly 1,500% at the Post. Meanwhile, the frequency at which privilege shared the same lexical space as terms like white, color, and skin reached a record high. The media's use of white supremacy and related terms to describe anything or anyone who does not conform to the CRT racist ideology is pervasive. Whenever it is used to mean, writes Goldberg, white supremacy is now everywhere and applicable to any context. Considered that until 2015, terms to white supremacy almost never registered at more than 0.001% of all words in any given year in any of the above newspapers, with the exception of the Wall Street Journal, those whose upswing was less consistent, this ceiling has been comfortably breached in every year since. By 2019, the Times 
and the post were respectively using these terms approximately 17 to 18 times more frequently than they were in 2014. Moreover, the vast federal bureaucracy is inundated with the CRT agenda and training. President David uh, Donald Trump took steps last September 22, 2020, to end the spread of the ideology with Executive Order 13950. It stated in part, this destructive ideology is grounded in misrepresentations of our country's history and its role in the world. Although presented as new and revolutionary, they resurrect the discredited notions of the 19th century's apologists for slavery who, like President Lincoln's rival Stephen A. Douglas, maintained that our government was made on the white basis by white men for the benefit of white men. Our founding documents rejected these racialized views of America, which were soundly defeated on a bloodstained battlefields of the Civil War, yet they're now being repackaged and sold as cutting-edge uh, insights. They were, are designed to divide us and to prevent us from uniting as one people in pursuit of one economic destiny for our country. So none of our institutions are safe from it. Uh, the Smithsonian Institution Museum graphic recently claimed that concepts like objective, rational, linear thinking, hard working being the key to success, the nuclear family, and belief in a single God are not values that unite America of all races, but instead aspects and assumptions of whiteness. The museum also stated that facing our whiteness is hard and can result in feelings of guilt, sadness, confusion, defensiveness, and fear. Okay, so hard work is now racist. Uh, the nuclear family is now racist. The belief in a single God is now racist. You know what that equates? Faith, family, and freedom are now racist, which is why Christians who believe in uh, our Second Amendment, the right to carry and bear arms, and who do not buy into all this stuff are now terrorists. I don't know if you've seen that, but we are now terrorists according to the United States government. It's unbelievable. So they're using the very um, tactics and ideas that framed our country against us. James Madison once asked a friend, what do we mean by the American Revolution? Do we mean the American War? The revolution was effected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people. A change in the religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affection of the people was the real American revolution. That's a true statement. That's a true revel revelation that if not stopped, we're going to end up shedding blood again. And we can't let that happen. It was the change in the minds and hearts of the people that erupted in a physical revolutionary war. And if it wasn't for that change we probably would have replaced the British regime with one just like it, or we would have remained subjects of the monarch. But people strategically implanted in the hearts of the citizens of the colonies the need to have representation of their needs in this country, and the British weren't going to do it. They instilled freedom. They instilled faith to worship God how they saw fit, not how England dictated. All of these ideas started in the hearts of the people and ended up on a battlefield where the greatest nation, the greatest experiment of democracy was born. If it wasn't for that change, where would we be? Well, Hannah Jones claims 
that the country's founding documents were written by enslavers, therefore they're false, versus seeing how Lincoln saw them as a declared right of equality that could be enforced as soon as circumstances permitted. And she wants school children to think that there's nothing to celebrate about the men of 1776, which was even more evident this past 4th of July when race baiters and haters maligned our country using the 1619 Project Dogma. I mean, the New York Times' own words is, we need to reframe our country's history. It shows a biased starting point. And in spite of historical data or facts uh, not being presented at all, they decree it as a fact. So this project seeks to define America by one thing, racism. And in case you've missed it, uh, Hannah, or Nicole Hannah-Jones, is a Marxist. She said that Cuba was among the most equal countries because of socialism. She wrote this on July 19th, 2021. So, I mean, that basically lets us know she's a socialist. She also wrote, quote, education is a cornerstone of the revolution. Nearly everywhere among the magnificent Havana architecture, signs speak of equality and liberation through education. All this while Cuban people were standing up against a brutal communist regime. These people are either stupid, liars, or both. So, whether we like it or not, we're already in a revolution. And it's using education, just like we did in 1776, a year prior, to change the hearts and minds of the people of this country. They're going after our most innocent. And they're teaching them to hate America, hate their race if white, and turn them into little Marxists that want to destroy our country. We must act, and we must move. On that note, I'm developing some downloads with specific action steps you can take on all fronts, not just education. But for now, I highly recommend that you read the 1776 Commission Report drawn up by President Trump to refute the 1619 Project's lies. I've got all of the links to everything I've talked about in the show notes of this episode. Read the Federalist Papers and study our founding documents. Memorize them. I regularly read them over and over and over. Uh, I'm hoping in the next episode to have those things ready for you. But right now, you can literally Google and download PDFs of all of these things. Uh, In fact, I just read Federalist Paper number 10, I believe by James uh, Madison. Uh, And it's astounding how they foresaw the very thing we're seeing today in our country, and that's socialism. As far as our recommended reading this week, I'm recommending Woke, Inc. It is a fabulous, fabulous book. Uh, Let me grab for you uh, the author's name, and hopefully I don't botch it. He was in um, uh, corporate America. He's a fabulous uh, man that saw, his name is uh, Vivek, or Vavik, Uh, Ramaswamy. Uh, He is an immigrant through his parents. He's a millionaire and he left corporate America just so he could speak to uh, all the things that he sees that's going on. So it's another read that is uh, quite long, but it's worth it and it's worth being educated. And so if education is the key, then education for us is key. Start those book groups. Start talking to people about what's happening in this country. Share this podcast. Rate this podcast. The more shares, the more ratings, the higher up we'll get in the list. It's very, very 
important to do those things. They're not just an ego hit, guys. It's important to do those things because the way Apple, the way uh, uh, Facebook, all of them, Google have uh, done things is so that engagement, rating, reviews, comments, etc., they will push more of this out to people. Now, of course, you have some that if it's, uh, you know, against woke culture, uh, they'll try to bury it. But you can help get this podcast out by sharing. So our good news on this podcast is teen honors late mom and graduation photo shoot instead of walking on stage. A recent high school graduate found a way to honor his late mother after he earned his diploma nearly a year early. Contavious K.J. Morgan, 17, celebrated his academic achievements and his mother's life with a -a one-of-a-kind photo shoot. His uh, mother, Teresa Colbert, died from cancer on May 12, 2019, which is a day Morgan will never forget because it also landed on Mother's Day that year, year, he said. My mom was my best friend. She was the only thing I had, so when she just passed away, it left me hurt. To cope... K.J. threw himself into his studies and enrolled in both high school and college classes during his junior year, all while juggling part-time work as a hair braider. During regular school days, Morgan attended Northside High School in Warner Robins, Georgia. He'd go on to take college courses during a dual enrollment program at Central Georgia Technical College whenever he had time after school or during winter and summer breaks. K.J. earned his earned 26 college credits th- through the Dole Enrollment Program, and he graduated high school in late July, 10 months before he was supposed to. Instead of the traditional walk across the stage, KJ arranged a photo shoot that included a gradu- custom graduation stolen large, uh, and a large printout, both of which featured photographs as his, of his mother. He told uh, Fox News, He chose a private photo shoot because he remembers his mother used to say she'd be there to cheer him on. I didn't want to have a graduation ceremony, KJ said. I didn't want to walk at all because that was going to eat me up on the inside being on that stage. While taking photos with the stolen printout was an emotional challenge, KJ believes it was a perfect way to show his dedication to his mom. KJ recalls his mother would always encourage him and his siblings to work hard and be themselves, which are two life lessons he said he's taken to heart. There's more to life than just a person. You still have to get those things done, he said. Parent-wise, I feel like all of us can relate to some kind of hurt, and I just want people to realize that when you go through that hurt, you don't have to use that as an excuse to be down. You can use that as a motivation. KJ is taking a gap semester to figure out his next steps, The number of college credits he has earned is enough for him to reach sophomore status. Potential career opportunities KJ is considering include orthodontistry, fashion designer expanding his hair braiding business. He's also not opposed to the idea of social media influencing thanks to his 140,100 TikTok followers. There are just so many things that could could work, KJ said. I want to be everything. Good words to end on. Until next week, faith, family, and freedom.